2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So I was flipping through the channels the other day, and there was this sitcom on TV. And I started thinking about this because there was snow on the ground. And I was wondering how they make that fake snow for TV and movies, because you think about all the things that could melt the snow there. Like, there's these hot lights, they have these long shoots, and they can't use real snow, obviously, so I looked it up. And what did you find out? Well, the good news, a lot of it, it's edible mango. You can eat (laughs) all that snow. So, in early movies, they used cornflakes that were painted white to make snow. But then when sound came into film, you know, obviously all the crunchy sounds would be too loud if they were stepping on it. So they had to find a replacement. And over the years, sets have used everything from firefighting foam to instant potato flakes to flour, even marble dust. But the stuff they use today is
4: actually mostly paper, believe it or not. That's pretty weird. I I feel like paper is the last thing I would have expected for, like, fake snow in movies. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about that either. But,
3: you know, it's available in all different grains and sizes, depending on what kind of snow you're looking for. But actually, the process of making it is pretty cool. So the paper snow is packaged in these huge bales and then it's shot through a special hose that lightly dampens the paper so that it will stick to whatever it lands on, just like snow. And according to Roland Hathaway of the Snow Business Hollywood, are you familiar with Snow Business Hollywood? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The technique can cover up to 37 square meters per minute, plus it never melts. So that's just Uh the first of nine facts we've got for you today about wintertime inventions. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Ticketer. And
4: sitting behind the soundproof booth, wrapped up in his slanket, Mango. I know, which I really thought was like an off-brand Snuggie, but Tristan insists it's the original blanket with sleeves. He is very passionate (laughs) about this. Yes, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil.
3: (laughs) So, Mango, I know it's boring to talk about the weather, but the weather definitely inspired this week's
4: episode. I know. This weekend was so miserable in New York City it was just like rainy and wet and when you've got two feral kids like I do <laughs> who are just like hard to tame and even harder to keep indoors it is truly miserable <laughs> but uh you know anyway all this winter weather made us wonder like what are some great winter time inventions worth celebrating yeah yeah actually I love that old quote that everyone always talks about the weather but no one does anything about it and we definitely have a few people on this list who did something about it including my first fact which is about earmuffs so I don't know if I knew this before and forgot it, or I just never heard this. But the inventor of the earmuffs was a 15 year old boy from Maine named Chester Greenwood, and Chester had this horrible allergy to wool. So, but before you can keep the story going, well, when are we talking about here? I think it was like the late 1800s. So, um, yeah, my, my notes say 1873, and and of course it's surprising that a kid invented them. But you know, basically, Chester wanted to go skating with his friends at the pond. Which, uh, of course, sounds so wholesome and so American. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he couldn't wear a hat because of this wool allergy he had. And his ears got so cold that he had to turn around and go home immediately. And apparently, this was a pretty common occurrence for little Chester. But uh, this time, he was totally fed up. And when he got home, he asked his grandmom to help him assemble this thing he'd been thinking about. It was like little shields for his ears and uh, once he described what he wanted, his grandmom got out her sewing materials and, and she whipped up the world's first pair of earmuffs. Mm-hmm. And and the device, Chester later called it the Greenwood Champion Ear Protectors. Oh, I like is, that name. We should call yeah, them that now. I, I feel like it's a much better name than earmuffs. Mm-hmm. But the original muffs were made from beaver fur on the outside and velvet on the ear side. And, and it had a band of wire connecting the two. And over the years, Chester improved on the design and he patented it. And by the time he was 25, He'd actually become the owner of an earmuff factory that cranked out 50,000 pairs every year. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Gabe told me the weirdest thing about this. Uh, Apparently, like, Chester's legend or the legend of his ears and their sensitivity grew over the years into, like, something of a myth. (laughs) And uh, and even, like, the Wall Street Journal reported on it, and this is what they said. Quote, Chester Greenwood's ears were so sensitive that they turned chalky white, then beat red, and deep blue in that order when the mercury dipped. Wow, blue. <laughs> I know. It, it feels like a gobstopper or something, but, you know, it's total nonsense. According to his grandkids, his ears were just cold, just big and cold.
3: <laughs> yeah, but that's much less dramatic. <laughs> well, anyway, here's a, a quick fact that I like. Did you know that the first makeshift snow vehicles that were used in the northern U.S. and Canada were actually just pimped out Model T's? Apparently, this started as far back as the 1910s when people would remove the car's undercarriage. And then what they would do is they would mount a pair of skis to the front and a set of tracks to the rear. So these converted cars were referred to as snow flyers, and they were a godsend to these rural residents, especially when it came to mail delivery.
4: Oh, That's really interesting. I, I, I like that people were almost like, hacking Ford's, uh, like it's IKEA furniture or something, pretty soon after they were made, right? Yeah, I mean, I think
3: it was just a year or two after the first Model T came out that people thought to put them on skis. But anyway, while I'm talking about snow vehicles, I'm actually going to throw out another fact the first snowmobile was invented by a 15-year-old. So I'm going to match your 15-year-old fact with one of my
4: own. <laughs> I feel like inventing a snowmobile is like a little bit more impressive than getting your grandmom to sew some earmuffs. With you. Yeah. Well. Anyway, the story's pretty
3: fascinating. So apparently, in 1922, there was this kid from Quebec named Joseph Armand Bombardier, and he built and tested the first full-scale snowmobile. So Mm -hmm. Joe Armand had been interested in playing with mechanical things since he was a kid and had been making his own since he was 13. He built these toy tractors and boats for his younger siblings. he had made a steam-powered spinning wheel for his aunt and even a miniature train that he built with this old clock part. So yeah, the guy was pretty resourceful. But none of those prior works could prepare Bombardier's family for what he sprang on them on New Year's Eve. So taking a cue from the locals, he had started with the Model T engine, but rather than use the rest of the car, this young inventor instead mounted the engine to two wooden sleds that he hitched together, and if that doesn't sound dangerous enough, he also added a handmade wooden propeller to the back of the engine <laughs> to help propel the rig through the snow. I mean, this guy, this is, I love this story. Anyway, actually it was that last part that ultimately led his dad to order the contraption be dismantled although Bombardier's younger brother was able to pilot the prototype snowmobile for more than half a mile watching his son speed across the snow that close to an open propeller he said made his stomach turn
4: that is incredible and of course like as a dad watching your kid like wander on this like rickety contraption what's also amazing to me is like the fact that uh Bombardier got his hands on an engine like a 15 year old kid just like Ending up with an engine and two sleds and putting this stuff together. especially
3: at that time. You wouldn't think that it would be that easy. But anyway, later on when his dad wasn't hovering over him, he perfected the invention adding caterpillar treads to the design. That's pretty amazing.
4: So here's one I didn't know. It's that Eddie Bauer invented the first puffy down jacket in 1936. Mm. And he actually has a patent on it. The jacket was originally called the Blizzard Proof Jacket and later was rebranded as the Skyliner, I guess. But Bauer's coat was unusual because it, it used goose down to maximize warmth and breathability. But the thing that's most interesting about this whole story is that the coat was actually created out of necessity. It was after Bauer had nearly died of hypothermia while on a winter fishing trip. So you can imagine, not only was Bauer the owner of this sporting goods store that was kind of famous, but he also loved the outdoors. So this was January of 1936, His friend asked him to go fishing, and he decided to jump at the chance, and the day went super well. They caught about 100 pounds of steelhead in a matter of hours, which is, I guess, impressive. But as Bauer was hiking back to his car, he was soaked from the sweat and also just tired from this bag of fish he was hauling, and he started to fall asleep on his feet. Apparently, the moisture in the wool clothes had actually frozen in the cold, and hypothermia was setting in. But Bauer was an outdoorsman. He was quick thinking. He actually had a gun on him. So he shot it twice in the air to signal to his friend. And his friend came running and and saved him. But uh, apparently after he almost died from hypothermia, he realized that people really needed a lightweight jacket that could be worn comfortably, Mm -hmm. especially in cold weather while they were doing things that were like strenuous or working or whatever. And the very next year, he invented the down jacket.
3: Wow. I actually didn't realize that Eddie Bauer himself had invented so many of these things. But yeah. right, well, here, here's a quick one. Since we're talking about staying warm, I was actually looking up facts about mittens.
4: <laughs> so I actually looked up facts about mittens, too. But the only thing I found that was even remotely interesting was there's something called a beer mitten. Well, even though I was about to share my fact, I have to ask, what <laughs> what is a beer mitten? I guess it's like a mitten and a beer koozie in one, so <laughs> like you can keep your hands warm and your beer cold. Oh, wow. Uh, it's this Icelandic invention, and there are all these knitting patterns for them online, but the weird thing is that it's super single-purpose, so... You can't really do anything other than drink and hold a beverage in your hand if you're wearing a beer mitten. Wow! But I did cut you off, so uh, uh, you said you were looking up mittens. Well, I'm glad you found some because
3: I didn't find anything great. But, but you know, one thing I <laughs> did find was that mittens are surprisingly old; like they've been around since prehistoric times. But what's interesting is, according to a publication called Fashion Time, is that the earliest gloves were found in King Tut's tomb. And since he died around 1323 BCE, that actually makes the oldest known pair of gloves well over 3,300 years old.
4: It's weird to think that gloves are like 3,000 years old and and earmuffs are only like 150 years old. But speaking of muffs, which is not a transition I normally make, do you know what hand muffs are? I don't. What are hand muffs? They are like those furry cylindrical things that rich people wear sometimes. You see them in like old Hollywood movies or in ski towns. Yeah. And, you know, people just stuff their hands into them. But apparently hand muffs have been a status symbol since the 1400s. And they've actually been called different things in different places. In France, they're called manchon. In England, they were called snuffkins, which <laughs> I like. <laughs> but the name we know it by came from the Flemish word muff or muff. And according to the Encyclopedia of Clothing and Fashion, this trend grew in popularity after the colonies started sending furs to Europe. So women in England and France would actually warm their hands with the furs of sables or martens, And sometimes they'd jazz up their muffs with stylish accessories. So listen to this. They'd actually add bejeweled animal skulls to hang from the chain, Ugh. which is so weird yeah, it to is. me. Also, uh, fashionable women in the 16th century would tote their tiny dogs in them. So they're kind of like the tiny dog purses you see today. Right, right. And weirdly, men also got in on this muff craze, although, of course, they wanted to wear more manly furs like otter and tiger. Right. And people who were cash strapped and just kind of aspiring fashionistas, they'd settle for lesser animals like squirrel fur muffs.
3: Who knew there was such a history there? Well, Mm -hmm. I feel like we've learned enough about hand muffs for a while now. So why don't we take a quick break (laughs) and come back with two more facts?
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
3: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking about winter inventions. All right, Mega, so what do you want to end with here?
4: So in honor of my cold, which doesn't seem to go away ever, how <laughs> about we talk about Kleenex? So <laughs> how, how long have you been sick now? Is it 38 years? <laughs> I think so. I feel like every time I start to get better, my kids bring back like different germs to invade my system. Yeah. But uh, back to Kleenexes. So it is fairly obvious that handkerchiefs predate disposable tissues by several centuries, you know? But the disposable option is actually older than you might guess. It turns out the Japanese have been using disposable facial tissues since about the 17th century. And they used a super fine paper called washi. Mm. The Western world, though, they they were a little later to the game. They didn't get into it until the 1920s. And and that's when Kimberly-Clark Corporation, which I'm sure you've heard of, they released Kleenex to the market in 1924. But this is the weird part. Kleenex actually wasn't intended for blowing your nose at all. Instead, Kleenex tissues were originally meant as a way for women to remove cold cream and clean their faces, which is where the clean in the name comes from. Hmm. So even the early ads from the period have like Hollywood makeup departments endorsing them. And, and they show movie stars like um, Helen Hayes or Jean Harlow and how they supposedly used Kleenex to uh, wipe off their theater makeup. But the public sort of immediately knew what to do with them. And within two years, Kimberly Clark was getting all these letters from customers praising Kleenex as the perfect disposable handkerchief. Apparently, 60% of customers used Kleenex for blowing their noses, which totally outnumbered the number who were using them to wipe off the cold cream. And Kimberly Clark took the hint. By 1930, the company had completely changed course and changed their marketing entirely, and Kleenex sales had doubled as a result. Wow. So, Will, what fact do you want to end on?
3: All right. Well, since I started with a fact about artificial snow, I kind of want to end with one on how man-made snow got invented in the first place. But before we talk about the snow, actually, let's talk about a special kind of ice that's called rime. So when the water vapor in a cloud or fog collects on the surface of an object, it can sometimes freeze and form this white ice frost, which is rime. So in the 1940s, there was this low-temperature lab in Canada that was experimenting to see what kind of effect Rime had on the intakes of a jet engine. So to recreate the icing effect in their lab, these researchers sprayed water in front of the engine that they had suspended in their wind tunnel. But instead of creating Rime, they accidentally started making snow. And I mean a (laughs) lot of snow. And according to the team's report, they had to shut down the engine multiple
4: times just to shovel snow out of the wind tunnel. (laughs) has been so much <laughs> fun. <pretty> funny. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it does feel like a loud way to make snowed, right? Like, like they must have refined snowmakers over the years. I guess so. And those Canadian scientists were just the first to
3: accidentally make snow. I mean, now the process is way quieter. So anyway, after all these facts, who do you think deserves today's trophy?
4: You know, I like the one about the earmuff dude, Chester, but <laughs> I actually really love, I feel like the one that's going to be most memorable to me is the cornflake fact. And the fact that people used to paint all these cornflakes white to make snow in movies, it's crazy. I, I think that's probably my favorite fact. So I, I think you deserve the trophy today.
3: All right, well, I will take it. And that's it for today's part-time genius. If you've got some fun snow or ice or winter facts to share, we'd love to hear those from you. We also love to just hear topics from you guys if you ever have ideas for episodes. but from Gabe, Tristan, Mango. Actually, I think Tristan fell asleep in his slank at Mango. But <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for listening.